want to welcome you here to St. James Christian Church this morning. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, a couple of quick announcements. Next, uh, next week is uh, Palm Sunday, and the week after that, of course, is, is Easter. We would love to have you uh, join us for all of those events and also for the Passover Seder on Good Friday. If you want to join us for that, please sign up so that we can get a rough number of those who are coming. And we are hosting an egg hunt on Easter Sunday, uh, and I guess a number of people have asked about donating candy for that. We, we are accepting donations for candy. I've been asked to tell you uh, that we would rather you not bring chocolate candies. Now, the kids probably would rather we did, but uh, apparently everything chocolate melted, even in uh, rather, rather moderate temperatures. So uh, if you can pick us, pick us up some Easter candy that's not chocolate. Uh, that would be great, and there's be a donation space for that uh, in, in the in the lobby. Next week, well, we're starting something new with the Lifeline Pregnancy Center. We're going to have a, a monthly collection Sunday for that, so uh, we'll start that next next Sunday. Uh, so note in your bulletin, there's some some ideas there about things that the center needs, and uh, we want to continue to support this ministry, and so that's going to be our monthly collection day for that. Here at St. James Christian Church, one of our core values is we love God. Jesus said that loving God was the most important commandment. And in saying that, he is echoing something that all of his listeners knew. Because the Shema, the here, the hero Israel, um, is the central confession of the Hebrew faith. Faith in, in, in God. And that is that the Lord your God is one God, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That guiding principle directs everything else. When we love God first, that sets everything else into motion, which is one of the main reasons that we do gather for worship every week, because worshiping God puts God first, puts everything back in the order that it's supposed to be in. So worshiping God, God doesn't call us to worship just because he's vain and needs us to tell him how great he is. He calls us to worship because it puts us back into the relationship with him where we need to be, and it uh, gets our minds and our heart and our eyes focused on the things he needs us to be focused on. So when we, when we left off last week, uh, we were talking mostly about the Pharisees, and, and Jesus says to the Pharisees that they won't receive any of the signs that they're asking for. The only sign they'll receive is the sign of Jonah, and he offers no explanation for this, and nobody understands it. Nobody understands that, that Jonah's, the way that Jonah spent three days in the belly of this great fish, that Jesus will spend three days in the tomb before he rises up again, and that will be the ultimate sign that he is the king uh, that he uh, is intended to be. Nobody gets it. Not just the Pharisees, but the disciples themselves don't, don't get it. And we have been focused largely on the Pharisees and their response, but they're kind of easy because they are rejecting Christ and they're antagonistic towards Christ. What about the ones that are not rejecting him, that, that love him, 
they're going to struggle with these ideas too. I think a lot of us are probably more like Thomas than we would like to admit. We sort of need to see it. We need the evidence. Show me. Show me the wounds. Show me. Give me the facts. Some of the things of the kingdom of heaven, some of the things of God, are so far beyond our imagination that until we see them, until we experience them, it's difficult for us to claim that we know them. Sometimes we think that we know them, but perhaps, perhaps we don't as much as we should. I remember as a, uh, as a boy, my two older sisters, who were several years uh, ahead of me, got involved with this missions group, teenage missions group, and they would spend their summers traveling around uh, across the western United States, going from different churches and camps and just performing different services uh, for all of those churches. And at the end of the summer, they would host a two-week camp called Camp Victory. And so my first exposure to this mission team was at Camp Victory. I went uh, I was actually a little too young to be there. They let me go because my two sisters were there, and so they figured uh, I'd, I'd manage. I was 11 years old. I'm at Camp Victory. And Camp Victory was, I grew up going to camps, but Camp Victory was really sort of unlike anything I had experienced before. It was twice as long, for one thing. We spent an awful lot of time in class. And it was very focused. And what really impressed me the most was these young people. After having spent most of their summer together, they had formed this tight-knit community. They had given their summer, which is kind of amazing to think about teenagers doing that. They had given their summer to Christian service. And I saw something in them. I experienced something being with them that I had not experienced before. It was not until that week that it occurred to me that the kingdom of Jesus might be a real thing here and now. Now, it's, it's not that I didn't spend time in church. I certainly did. The church was like a second home, and I mean that almost literally because my parents were very involved and we were there all the time. I, I was very familiar with it, and I grew up around a great many devout people, people who were deeply committed, committed to their religion as they understood it. I knew the stories. I knew the problem of sin. I knew the five-finger exercise. I knew the finer points of Christian doctrine. But until then, it had not occurred to me that the kingdom might be a real thing now. I suspect, I suspect, and I don't, I don't, mean, I don't mean to insult the people that I grew up around because they were great people. But I suspect then, as, as now, as millennia ago, we have a hard time imagining the kingdom 
until we have seen it, until we have experienced it for ourselves. And I imagine that the kingdom, then as now, is very often not what we expect it to be. We take for granted when we read the gospel stories that no one expected Jesus to be the kind of Messiah that he is. That they all misunderstand. Not just, not just the religious leaders, but all, also his followers spend all of his ministry not completely understanding what this is about. And they go through the events of the crucifixion and they're still not understanding what all of this is about. We take it for granted that nobody knew that they were all in the dark, except that the prophets had already talked about it. And so Isaiah 53, that our presentation there was talking about, just a few verses from Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We, are like sh- we like sheep have gone astray, all of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The prophet goes on and describes all of these pretty specific details about this suffering servant Messiah. And one of the things that we need to understand about that, one of the things that we need to take away from that is that the plan was always the plan. This whole business of Jesus dying on a cross, God didn't come up with that in the interim. He didn't let millennia go by and then decide, hey, I know what we'll do. This was always the plan from the creation on. We read there in in chapter 3 of Genesis that the enemy of God is going to strike at the heel of the Son of Man and that heel will crush his head. We know, we know that the servant of God, we know that the Messiah is going to suffer. It's always been there. And it's no secret in Jesus' ministry. This is the thing that, that I find just astounding. And Matthew points this out in numerous ways. It's fascinating to me that Matthew writing what is essentially his own story of Jesus does not flatter himself at all in the story. He talks about the fact that, that Jesus is telling them all this stuff and they can't hear it, they can't comprehend it, they can't make sense of it. He says from that point on, Jesus talked about what was going to happen. And at least in three different passages in Matthew, he specifically tells them, we're going to go into Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be put on trial, I'm going to be put to death, and I'm going to raise up from the dead after three days. He tells them that specifically. And they can't process it. They don't know what to do with it. They respond in a variety of different ways. They respond with misunderstanding. They are offended by it. They get angry about it. But after the crucifixion, it's pretty clear they didn't get it. 
they didn't learn it. Which raises kind of an important side point. This is going to become very important as we get into our study of, of Revelation starting next month. That most prophecy is best understood in hindsight. A lot of prophecy talks about the future, but it talks about it in a way, it talks about, it gives prophetic visions and things, it talks about the future in a way that does not necessarily give us all the details. It doesn't flesh out the whole story. And quite often, the future that it describes is rarely understood until that future is past. So we read Isaiah 53 and we go, well, of course this is about Jesus. Of course this is about the Messiah. But understand that the people of Jesus' day had Isaiah 53. They were familiar with the passage. And they didn't understand it to mean what it meant. So beware those who claim to discern prophecy for you. Remember that the people of Jesus' day thought they knew exactly what the Messiah should look like. Matthew 16, sorry, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah the Son of the living God. The people around Jesus recognized him. They recognized him. Sometimes we forget. But what Jesus is doing is kind of hard to miss, right? He's healing blind people. He's healing lepers and paralytics. He's casting out demons. He's walking on water. He's feeding thousands of people with a few loaves of bread. It's kind of hard to miss. Even when he's telling people, don't tell anybody what I did. It's kind of hard to miss that Jesus is who he is. It's a very enlightening phrase in the middle of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to him and he says, we know that you're from God because nobody could do the things that you do if they weren't from God. Now that's a Pharisee talking. And he says, we. So these people that we've been reading about that are constantly approaching Jesus and trying to trap him and antagonize him and be a problem for him, they know that he's from God. You can't miss that. And we could argue about how he's from God. Some of the people think he's a prophet. They have different ideas about, you know, it, it, maybe he's the Messiah, maybe he's not, but we know he's from God. People, the people around Jesus recognized him. But it's Peter who sort of wins the final Jeopardy round. He says, you are the one. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. And in verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So confession of the Messiah is the foundation of the church. It's the beginning of everything. Knowing who Jesus is, 
finding the courage to express who Jesus is, that's the cornerstone of our faith. The question is, is it enough? Because the world is and always has been full of people who know God, who know who Jesus is, but don't do anything about it. And so in Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day will be raised to life. Peter took him aside. <laughs> Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Now what's going on here? I, I think that what's going on here is that Matthew very intentionally reveals to us the brokenness of our human faith. Because looking back at Peter, we can see how foolish this whole conversation is. But the reality is that Peter's kind of speaking for all of us in this moment, and he's essentially saying, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God, but right now, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Our humanity longs to fit God into its preconception. We've got an idea of what the Messiah should look like, and we expect Jesus to fit our idea. Even as Peter knows Jesus, he loves Jesus, he cannot in this moment quite bring himself to bend his life to what Jesus is saying. The words that are coming out of Jesus' mouth anger him, frustrate him, and offend him. He attempts to shape Jesus to his assumptions. He attempts to counsel God. Now, let's just be honest for a minute. How many of us at some point have tried to tell God what he should be doing? You're doing it wrong! This is not the way this is supposed to work. Let me tell you how it's supposed to work. Let me tell you what my assumptions are, and you can, you can try to fit my assumptions. In verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. That must have been hard. Must have been a hard phrase to hear. If you just, just just recently been told that your confession is the foundation of Christ's church, and now you're speaking for the enemy. And I don't want to hear from you right now. Here's the lesson that Peter has to learn. Here's the lesson that we all have to learn from time to time. Jesus can be Lord, or he can be mistaken. He just can't be both. Peter recognizes Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. He loves Jesus. But he still manages to miss the point in spectacular fashion. In spite of everything that he sees, he cannot see what matters to God. He's thinking about human concerns. Jesus basically says to him, you're thinking like a man. You're not thinking like God. The temptation is always for us to recognize Jesus 
and then to follow Jesus to the extent that Jesus is and does as we expect him to be and do. But Jesus is either Lord or he's mistaken. He is not both. I returned from camp all those years ago, having put on Christ in baptism, come home with my newfound faith, come home to my hometown congregation, and I began looking for kingdom, looking for evidence of kingdom in my church. And it was there. It always had been there. But it was veiled, in a sense, veiled by... Church politics and religiosity and various feuds and arguments. Basically, it was veiled by human concerns, and I missed it. Jesus follows all of this up in Matthew 16, verse 24. He says, Then he said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? In other words, the only legitimate response to the lordship of Jesus Christ is radical obedience. Now I will confess to you this morning, and I am a very foolish man. And I am quite often consumed by worldly concerns. By human concerns. And I should and I do know better than that. And so this passage rings with conviction. What is it that you've gained? What do you have to gain? More money, more stuff. What awards or championships are you going to to win? What popularity are you going to achieve? How much control, how much power? And for which of these should we trade our soul? Jesus says, you know, follow me, deny yourself, and take up your cross. But how often has that become for us serve myself in the name of the cross? That's just idolatry, and we know it. And though we preach radical obedience, it occurs to me that we rarely invite each other to do hard things. We've spent so much time trying to make the Christian journey and Christian spirituality easy for people to access. That, that, that we've given up on asking them to do anything hard. But I look at Jesus throughout his ministry and he is constantly inviting us to do hard things. It was three years after that camp, I was 14 years old, and I joined that same mission team and I spent the summer with them. I had to commit all 10, 10 weeks to travel with the team on this broke-down old bus. We made our way to Idaho, Washington, Oregon, and different spots in California. 
had to memorize about a hundred verses, had to take a test in order to be allowed to, to go on the trip. I, I think back on that time. Think back on my 14-year-old self. I look at some of the young people we have in this congregation who are in that 13, 14, 15-year age range, and I think, wow, I was young. And looking back, I know I didn't know anything. I probably thought I knew a lot, but I didn't know anything. It amazes me to some extent that my parents even let me go. I realized, looking back on that time, I don't know, maybe we thought we were pretty hot stuff, but I realized looking back that, oh, we all had our different gifts and talents, we all had our different personalities, and we all maybe brought something to the table. There was absolutely nothing exceptional about us. All those young people crammed into that bus, there's nothing exceptional about any of us. We weren't super Christians. We weren't more talented. We weren't more focused than other teenagers. The only difference, the only thing that made the whole experience exceptional is that we, for 10 weeks out of our summer, answered the call of kingdom, made the decision to live for Jesus in the context of community. My journey the rest of my life has been anything but consistent. But I can tell you this with absolute certainty, with the benefit of hindsight, that 10 weeks changed the trajectory of my entire life. Living for Jesus in the context of a community, being the kingdom, the idea of that, the ideal of that, the heart of that has never left me since. I have looked for it everywhere I've gone. I have sought it out. And I wonder sometimes, where are the opportunities like that? When do we give people an opportunity to see Jesus and to love Jesus and to value the kingdom of Jesus? I think sometimes we don't offer those opportunities because we don't actually expect people to live like the kingdom is real. I'll give you an invitation this morning to do hard things for the kingdom. We're working very hard right now on something called Kingdom Builders Discipleship Initiative. This is intense training and equipping. It's mentoring. It's focused ministry experience, it's spiritual formation, it's emotional health. It is a two-year process divided over six phases. It is hard things. But here's what we're saying. You give Christ your open heart and we will do everything that we can do to equip you to be a world changer, an approved servant, and a missionary in place wherever your place is. See, I think that like Peter, 
knowing who Jesus is and loving who Jesus is is a perfect foundation. But notice that Jesus is not done building Peter from that point. He continues the work. And in Matthew 17, 1, and 1 through 3, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and there he transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Here's another layer of revelation that Jesus is going to add to Peter's confession. That Jesus is the glorious fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That's why these men are there. Moses is a representative of the law. Elijah is a representative of the prophets. Jesus, in his glory, is the fulfillment of both. And here's the thing. As impressed as Peter, James, and John are, the very next theological conversation that we read about in the Gospel of Matthew is this. Which of us, your followers, will be the greatest in the kingdom? Folks, the simple truth is our humanity is distracted by self-importance. It's not just an issue with the apostles. It's not just an issue back then. We struggle with this all the time. Our humanity is distracted by self-importance. This conversation, as we read it in the gospel, as we read it in hindsight, it is comical, but it is also inevitable. How often have we thought, when I've done what's important to me, I'll get around to doing what's important for Christ? How often have we thought that the kingdom of heaven is still a ways off as long as I get to it before I die, I'll be all right. How often have we thought that our, the, the church is something that we own and that we control rather than an, an outpost of the kingdom of God to which we belong? It's as if Jesus is not enough. It's as if Jesus' word is incomplete. It's as if his grace is insufficient as if my personal salvation is my only concern and that the world around us can and probably will and maybe should just burn down. Jesus says, you want to be the greatest? Become like a child. And woe to the one who turns a child away. Give your attention to the lost. Be more focused on the lost, actually, than you are on the comfort of the fold. In Matthew 18, 4 and 5, it says, Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Folks, we are the church when what matters most to Jesus matters most to us. That's the church. That is the kingdom. And what matters most to Jesus? What matters most to Jesus 
is his perfect kingdom and inviting lost souls to find it. We have no choice but to have those same priorities. We have no choice but to put that at the top of our list. Because here's, here's the hard truth of our humanity. As much as I would like to believe that I could just teach you the words of truth and that you'll, you'll you see it all and it'll enter your heart and, and, and everything will just happen for you, the reality is, as human beings, we're a bit thick. And if we want people to see the kingdom, if we want them to see it, we have to be it first. We have to live it so they can know that it's real. And when they know that it's real, many of them will follow it and will never be satisfied with anything else.